First of all, please uh, join me in welcoming our Hari Kirtan is uh, a dear friend. I think we've known each other since we were in Knickers. Practically, yes. Something like that. Or Kokans. Or Kokans. <laughs> wow. And uh, now uh, Hari Kirtan is um, a Jiva Mukti instructor in Washington, D.C., where you teach at Buddha uh, Studios? Uh, I teach at a few studios, Buddha Yoga, Flow Yoga Center. Um, are the two main, two main uh, centers, uh, centers where I teach Jivamukti Yoga. Yeah. And he also has a wonderful newsletter, so if you'd like to sign up for his newsletter, it's harikirtan.com. Well, hari-kirtan, <coughs> with an A at the end, .com is my website. I have a few business cards that have the URL on it, so if you're interested, I have a, a blog. Uh, so if... <coughs> Too much is not enough for you after I've finished blah, blah, lying this evening. You can listen to or, or read more of my rants on yoga philosophy online. And what we're going to do, we, we decided to try kind of a little bit of an experimental format this evening. Um, and that is that we're going to, Hari Kirtan will speak with us for a while. And then we're going to do a kind of, uh, you know, open mind Q&A kind of interview and discussion. So you guys can be formulating your questions and comments and we're going to make this kind of interactive, right? And for our friends in podcast land, if you felt like coming in a little bit closer so that we can hear your questions, we have not yet evolved to the point where we have the technology to actually hear you. But uh, So be prepared because there will be a quiz at the end of the presentation. <laughs> and um, so uh, we, I guess the, the only thing I really want to say about Hari Kirtan is that um, there was this first generation of, of yoga that came into the United States starting in the early 60s and which evolved into what might arguably be described now as the American yoga culture, which is a something like $15 billion a year industry with, I don't know exactly how many hundreds of yoga studios around the country. And part of the experiment, as those of you who have been coming to the Gita gatherings regularly know, has been how do you combine these two worlds? How do you take this ancient culture with a terminology of its own, with a ritual framework of its own, with a cosmology of its own, and migrate that into the uh, vernacular of uh, a 21st century urban, you know, progressive environment. How do you put those two worlds together? I think one of the things that I admire so much about Harry Kirtan is that he's done that. He's evolved the language and the vocabulary with which to convey the particularly the devotional teachings, the bhakti teachings, into the world of uh, yoga. So, uh, without further ado, thank you very much for being our guest here this evening. Thank you very much for your kind introduction and for inviting me to come uh, and be with this wonderful group of people who uh, are so uh, seriously undertaking the study of Bhagavad Gita, trying to uh, understand what Krishna is trying to tell us and 
uh, who I might add are so fortunate uh, to have uh, such a uh, wonderful person as you as their fearless leader in this, <laughs> in this adventure. Um, I'm a regular listener uh, after the fact. Uh, I uh, am always a, a grateful recipient of the email message that says that the class has been uploaded to iTunes <laughs> and therefore I can download it and uh, I uh, listen to all of you while I'm making breakfast. Uh, I'm, I'm cooking cauliflower upma and listening to all of you uh, with the iPod in my apron pocket. Um, and I encouraged some of my uh, other serious students in Washington, D.C. to start listening to the podcast. And the result is that they came to me and said, we need to do the same thing here in Washington, D.C. Will you help us do that? And so you now have a, uh, a sister Gita uh, class or discussion study group, which they wanted an, even, even though it's kind of a you know, closed group, they wanted to have a name for it. You know? And I said, well, Sunset Gita is taken. We'll have to come up with something else. So it's uh, called Gita Illuminations, and we meet every other Monday evening. And, uh, you know, and so I wanted to thank you very much for inspiring a group of people in uh, Washington, D.C. to uh, take up the study of Bhagavad Gita in much the same way that you're doing it here, which is really wonderful. So, uh, if I... Huh? Yes, what? Yeah. Oh. I know, I said the same thank you. Oh, 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 yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Okay. That's inspiring for me. I, I, I hope that it is, because uh, it's uh, a wonderful thing to inspire others to take up the practice of yoga and the study of the philosophy that uh, is the foundation of the practice of, of yoga. So, uh, as is your traditional uh, manner of beginning, we'll chant for just a little bit, and, uh, and then we'll discuss.
you guys are all very expert champions. So, um, shall we chant you our usual our usual routine here? <laughs> is that uh, we'll do some call and response chanting, and then if I understand how your usual format works, then all of you will chant the verse, right? <laughs> this is how you do it. You guys, I chant and... Right. You, you can't stop. Yes, that's, as I understand it, you guys just can't wait to, 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 to the chanting of the verse. You have been, you have been listening to the, the podcast. Yes, of course. I definitely have. All right. So we're 413. Yeah. 413. 414. Yeah. I hope you're at 414. Yeah. 414 is uh, page 202. Or uh, 201. Well, yes, if everyone has the same book, mine is at 
verse, commentary, verse, commentary, verse, commentary. Because you get a, a, a feel for what is the subject of this chapter. You don't, you don't get lost in the commentary uh, and, and lose the flow uh, if you read it all the way through first and then come back. So in this, in this chapter, uh, Krishna starts to differentiate himself from Arjuna and by uh, extension uh, everyone else. Um, the uh, the way I, I generally paraphrase what's led up to this point is that you know Krishna has indicated that this imperishable science I, I taught this to the sun god a long time ago and uh, and now I'm teaching it to you so he gives and he gives Arjuna his qualification for understanding you know, because you're my devotee so th- so so this begins to establish. Arjuna's qualifications for understanding what Krishna has to say and therefore our qualifications to understand what, what Krishna has to say. And Arjuna says uh, in response, uh, wait a second, I've known you our whole lives and I know the sun god is way, way, way older than you. So explain to me how, how that's true. How, how, how did you do that exactly? And, and here is where Krishna makes this distinction. The first one being, we've had many births, I know about all of them, you don't remember them. That's our first distinction. Um, working up to now uh, this further distinction. In the previous chapter, Krishna is talking all about work. Our initial question in the Bhagavad Gita is this question, how should one act, and by extension, how should one act not only ethically or morally in this world, but how should we act in such a way as to not accumulate reactions to our actions that bind us to samsara, to the cycle of birth and death in the material world? How do we become free? How do we act in such a way that we don't cause a reaction? It seems like it's contrary to the laws of physics. The laws of the world require that there be a reaction to our action. So the Bhagavad Gita is answering this rather tricky question. How do you, how do you swing that? How do you, how do you make that happen? And one way to do it is here in this verse. Krishna begins, there's no work that affects me. As we'll find out uh, as we go deeper into the Gita, uh, Krishna is simultaneously busy, but not so busy. Uh, He is the source of everything. As we'll find out out later in the Gita, everything is emanating from, from him. And even though he doesn't have to do anything, still he's busy doing stuff. Because uh, it's his nature to be active, and therefore it is our nature to be active also. As infinitesimal parts of the complete whole that is Krishna, we are, are imbued with the qualities of Krishna but in minute quantity. And therefore, we can understand that our propensity to be active, to do things, comes from Krishna and the fact that we're part of, of this person who is 
both everything and the source of everything, which is what Krishna is beginning to reveal in this chapter. But there's a difference, and the first difference is that when we do something, we're affected by it, the, by what we do. There's a, there's a reaction. But here Krishna is saying, I can do anything and, and it doesn't touch me. Like uh, water off a duck's back. Or in this case, perhaps a swan is a better example. Um, un, unaffected by, by at work. And, and then in the second part he says, and, and I don't aspire to the fruits of action. This is, this is an interesting uh, way of expressing the idea of karma that I think is unique to this edition of the Gita. Um, Prabhupada's phrase, fruitive activities, uh, I think is unique in uh, Gita translations. The idea that you want to enjoy the fruits of your labor, that you do something and you want to have the enjoyment of the result. He has coined this phrase, fruitive activity. So here it's, I'm not, I don't aspire to, to the fruits. So there's a, there's a kind of detachment um, from, from the result. And then the third part of this, if you understand this truth, then you also are not entangled with what you do. That's a really curious uh, sentence. Because Arjun is trying to understand what, how, how he should act. And how to avoid uh, all of the unfortunate consequences that he sees from either acting or not acting. You know, it's, it's a, just a lose-lose situation. So, so where is this freedom to be found? Uh, where, where is the out on this, on this uh, conundrum? And in one sense, there's no out. He's obliged to act. He can't not act. But there is this idea that if he understands who Krishna is and what Krishna's nature is, then he acquires the same nature as Krishna, which is to be free from the reactions of work and to not aspire to the fruits of work. One of the things that strikes me in this is that there is a difference between acquiring the nature of the Supreme and thinking oneself to be the Supreme. There's a, a qualitative uh, analysis here. To be of the same nature is to realize one's own divine nature, which is the same divine nature as Krishna, spiritual nature. Um, but, it, but it doesn't necessarily translate into you realize that you are the supreme being personally but rather that there's a, there's a shared nature and then there's a relationship on the platform of that nature. The relationship on the platform of 
we aspire, we, we are affected by our work and, and we desire the results of the work um, is one of we, we, we have our own kind of uh, project where we're trying to organize the universe in such a way as to fulfill our desires. So uh, Krishna uh, obliges us by creating a situation where we think we can be the controllers of things and organize the world according to our desires, and he disappears from our view. So the relationship is one of uh, absence, and, and not only absence, unconscious absence, otherwise known as avidya, ignorance. Uh, of our actual true nature and, and the true nature of our relationships on the spiritual platform. When there's a recognition, on the other hand, of uh, Krishna and Krishna's nature as being above the fray of the material world, um, then that begins to uh, reinstate us in a relationship on the spiritual level where Krishna is present and we see Krishna more and more in everything that we do and, and, and the world around us. So, so this is the first... In this chapter, there is the beginning of how to act in order to bring Krishna back into view. Or the steps that we can take or the acknowledgement we can make that um, inspires Krishna to appear uh, because it's actually up to Krishna to appear and not up to us to oblige Krishna to appear. And for those of you, if any of you are, uh, in addition to the Bhagavad Gita, um, reading the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, um, you'll find that the qualities of, uh, the uh, qualities that Krishna is describing to himself are the same qualities that Patanjali ascribes to Ishwara in his Yoga Sutras. So for those of you who are yoga teachers, who are studying the Yoga Sutras, you can make a very, especially in this chapter here, there's a distinct correlation between Patanjali's description of Ishwara and Krishna's description of himself. And it's a very nice way to cross-reference uh, different yoga wisdom texts to uh, uh, understand these, these relationships. Now, I'm betting that uh, before I showed up and told you what I thought of this verse, you might have actually read the verse in the commentary as well. And I'd be very interested. Uh, I know Yogeshwar has some questions for me, but I thought before we get to those, uh, I'm going to ask you the question of what impressed you about this particular verse in the commentary? Yes, sir. So, to offer an answer to this question, I would have to think, well, why do I have so much trouble seeing Krishna? Of course, yes. Yes. Um, the answer 
for myself is uh, the absence of uh, determination to see Krishna. The act the absence of um, you know Krishna responds to love so it's the cultivation of love of Krishna that inspires Krishna to reveal himself he, he reserves the uh, the right to not reveal himself to everyone um, so uh, just as uh, Krishna, in the beginning of the chapter, here, tells Arjuna, uh, because you're uh, my friend and devotee, I'm telling you what you need to hear. So this is also our qualification. There's a direct correlation between uh, the intensity of our own uh, devotion or our determination to cultivate devotion and... Uh, experiencing Krishna. So on those, uh, there have been some rare occasions where I just feel like, uh, you know, I'm looking for Krishna, looking for Krishna, looking for Krishna. Oh, there's Krishna. But wouldn't the world be a better place if it was so much easier to find him? I mean, I'm just saying. The world, um, the world is here to shield those who are in it. Uh, uh, the world is here to shield uh, Krishna from the view of those who are in it. It's its function. It's not supposed to be a great place. Um, that is true. Yeah, it's not designed to be that great a place. It's it's actually you know it's designed to give us impetus to be somewhere else, uh, in in many respects, or at least to put our consciousness in a place where we experience it from a very different in a di- very different way. Yeah, basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the world, if Krishna, you know, if more people saw Krishna, then the world would definitely be a better place. Because what, what does that say about this state of people's consciousness? If, 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 if everyone in the world was seeing Krishna, we'd all we'd be in the spiritual world. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, the world would be a much better place if we could all see Krishna. But we have to have some qualification uh, in order for Krishna to feel inspired to uh, be present. The, but that mood, actually, of looking for Krishna, cultivating that mood. Well, that's actually, in the devotional uh, tradition, that is actually the highest spiritual ecstasy. It's not seeing Krishna, it's looking for Krishna. Okay. Purnima. Uh, yes. um, so, I'm sorry, to quickly read the verse here. The thing about the fruitive actions. So, first off, it almost seems in the first reading that it's almost um, Ayurvedanta that the Lord is not concerned with the actions, the karmas of his, you know, his people and the demigods. I'm just saying the first reading. But one is responsible for one's own actions. So the qualitative thing of what you just said about the Bob, the absence of, okay, one strives, okay, whatever one's karma is, is brought you to this point where either you are very ignorant of even understanding or even of a desire for Krishna, okay, or perhaps you may be adverse to the hearing about Krishna, or you may be someone who's longing for Krishna because you know that there's something that's continuing. So if you are striving, and yet you don't want to have the fruit of your action, it seems to me that the mindset is simply to 
establish, to be established in Krishna consciousness, but to just embrace that. That whatever happens, Lord, happens because it is the result of my karmas. I welcome that. I just, as long as I can strive to have you in my life, but without expecting you. In other words, just because I ask does not mean that God goes, great, you send me the invitation, I'm showing up at 9 o'clock on Friday. You know? But it's more like, God, I ask for you to be in my life. I would love for you to be in my life. It's okay. I just know, I feel in my heart that you are there and I feel certainty and that's love. And that's, I believe, I guess, to be just established in that mood. But what's so hard for a Westerner is that, when you come from a Judeo-Christian thing, is that you must work. If you are not working, God is not going to hear you. Ah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that complexion of just being in grace, and it, it just is, um, can take time. Lots of time. <coughs> lots of so it was interesting when I said groups of actions, because I was thinking on the work situation, one is always responsible, especially in an Eastern, like in a, say an Asian thing, Whatever the youngest person has done, I am responsible. If I'm at the yoga center and that one person made an egregious mistake, I am still responsible because I am part of the whole. Mm. But when you say to me that I also can't be attached to it because that person did that, it's sometimes a little harder to translate for work. Because, do you know what I mean? If someone was very rude to a student and that student never came back and never wanted to find the enlightenment here, I am as responsible because that person represented the school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, then how am I supposed to go? Well, you did do that action. It is in your mode. You have some gunas. You're working through your samsaras. You know, you came here to work it through. I can only can only do my best. I have given you my training. And if we're not connected, if we're not connected in the same consciousness, what have I done to not establish that consciousness here for you to become inspired? I guess that's the way to look at it. I don't know. One of the nice things about visiting New York is you get to go into um, stores where they have all these cool t-shirts. Um, and so uh, one, of the, one of the nicer t-shirts I saw the other day is one that said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, you're an idiot. <laughs> and so... Being detached from work is not the same as being um, indifferent to work. Um, Nor does it mean that you just write everything off as, well, you know, that's just your karma. That's my karma. You know, it's... That to me, is in the area of false renunciation or or repression or artificial renunciation. So the compassion still has to be there. Things actually matter. What we do matters. And and so, you know, there's a difference between understanding that we're not the ultimate controllers of things and being irresponsible. So if you have a responsibility, uh, then you have to engage in that responsibility uh, in such a way that you see uh, the supreme person in the heart of anyone you have to deal with, in the circumstances that have uh, arisen, see those circumstances as some circumstance that is 
meant to bring you closer to the Supreme Person uh, and then act responsibly both on a material and a spiritual level. You know, you can, you can uh, fire someone while remembering that Krishna is in their heart because you've told them a million times to do something that they cannot do and therefore they cannot act, function in this role that uh, is their responsibility and therefore I understand that Krishna is in your heart and you're fired. Because that's the right thing to do uh, in, a, in a circumstance. I mean, it may not be necessary in this particular circumstance. I'm taking it to an extreme, but to give that example that it doesn't mean you just have to live with everything uh, be, because it's just, you know, someone's karma. Uh, you have to act in the world in a responsible way and see as best as possible Krishna in the person's heart and in the situation that, that has arisen. Why don't we take one yeah. more question and then we'll go into our... Our conversation mode. Discussion. Yeah, okay. Yes, uh, Frank. For the first time I read this verse, I thought it was potentially dangerous or risky because I thought it would be used the wrong way if someone, someone could separate themselves from the results of their decisions. I felt like you could absolve them from the reactions of their work. Yeah, that, actually that's a good point. If you think you can imitate Krishna and you say, oh, this verse is talking about me. If I understand that, you know, uh, if I understand that Krishna is not affected by work and therefore I think I am Krishna and therefore I am not affected by work so I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. Right. You know, well, that's a misunderstanding uh, and exactly the kind of thing that can happen if you misunderstand in, in, in the way I was talking about earlier. If you think, you know, if your operating assumption is I am worshipping Krishna so that I can realize that I am Krishna, that's one way to do it. And that, and that kind of thing, frankly, in my opinion, is one of the dangers of doing that. Whereas if you are thinking I'm an eternal servant of Krishna and Krishna has this uh, capability and if I understand that he's always been that way, you know, he's, you know I, can, I can become like that to gain some aspect of Krishna's nature. But Krishna was always like this. Remember, at the beginning, he's talking about talking to the sun god millions of years ago. Um, so, and then in the uh, uh, corresponding uh, sutra, in the Yoga Sutra, talking about Ishvara, Patanjali uh, describes Ishvara as the teacher of the ancients. So someone who has always been transcendental is different from us because we're not, at least right now at this moment. But by recognizing that there is this person that we have a relationship with who's always been in this transcendental situation, then we can ourselves uh, become transcendentally situated. So that's a, that's a really good point about how the Gita can be uh, misunderstood and its message can be spun around for some ulterior motive. Thank you. Okay. So we can continue to discuss the subtleties of this particular verse. I thought um, one of the great advantages of having Hari Kirtan here would be to also uh, get a sense of um, how someone has evolved to become a bhakti teacher. And so I can ask all the impertinent questions that I want because I'm sitting up here. 
<laughs> so I'm going to start by doing just that. I want to ask you about your story. I'm okay. curious to know about how you became, how Harry Seldon became Harry Kirtan. How did you well, go from Harry to Hari? How did that, how did that happen? Okay, Tell well, us all about yourself. All right. Well, I can do that. See, uh, Joshua can uh, ask all the impertinent questions he wants because he is also my teacher. Uh, he, uh, when I became Hari, he had already been Yogeshwar for a while. So, uh, but and that was also part of my great good fortune to uh, be taking up uh, devotional yoga in New York City, where you happen to already be. So that was my my good luck, and that's how we met. Um, I was. Uh, I was actually interested in yoga from a pretty young age. Uh, I had an idea about the eternal nature of consciousness uh, when when I was a child. I don't really know how that occurred. Um, And then I uh, was inspired to take up the practice of yoga. Uh, My first inspiration was Gomez Adams. (laughs) <laughs> on the Adams Family TV show, uh, the original sitcom, it, because at that time, yoga was the practice of eccentrics. Uh, and if you go back and look at those shows, yes, Gomez Adams stood on his head. He was, he was actually the president of the Yoga Society, <laughs> which is only something a real weirdo would do. And of course, uh, I thought this is exactly the kind of... Pro- I want to be just like Gomez Adams. <laughs> When I, when I grew up, that was, what, that was who I aspired to be. Um, and then when I became a teenager, I started reading books and uh, doing meditative practices. Uh, with, I had a group of friends as you know, teenagers. We were all in, into... Um, this is like the you know, late 60s going into the early 70s now, so there was, it was a group of long-haired, hippie-freak teenagers. Wait, this is, in this is in, in Lo- on Long Island. Uh, and uh, we were we were into different kinds of philosophy and meditation and let's call it meditational accelerance. Uh, oh, what, a, what a dainty phrase that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were we were into into meditation enhancement te- te- technology. Uh, and. Uh, Anyway, so I tried chanting a lot of different mantras, um, and some of my high school friends had picked up this Bhagavad Gita, and I read it, or I tried to read it, and I didn't understand it. And, but I was still attracted to it for reasons I couldn't understand. So I tried to read it again, and then I actually thought that I understood it. And what I understood was that this little blue flute-playing cowherd boy is God. (laughs) And I'm not. I did not accept this. (laughs) At the time, I I much preferred, you know, more austere forms of meditation, uh, like Zen meditation and... uh, a Taoist philosophy and such. I, sat, I would sit in my, the basement of my parents' house thinking that if I just listened hard enough, eventually I would hear the whole universe. 
what I heard was the boiler in the basement. And, and even though I listened to it many, many times, every time it turned on, I still jumped. Eventually, now I remember this very clearly, I started chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. And some of my friends from high school had become uh, uh, bhakti yogis, had, had moved into the Hare Krishna temple in New York City. And I started chanting the Hare Krishna mantra because I hadn't chanted it. And I, I had a, once upon a time, there was no internet. Hard though that may be to believe. Um, and the only way to get a uh, set of documents from one office in Manhattan to another is if you actually picked them up and brought them there. <laughs> and there were messengers, foot messengers, who, were, uh, who had that as their job. And that was my job. I was a foot messenger. And I would walk around Manhattan all day with documents. And I would breathe and walk and chant the Hare Krishna mantra all in unison all day, every day. And this went on for weeks and weeks of this walking meditation. And then one day, while walking east on 42nd Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, right alongside Bryant Park, towards the library, I just had this flash. And the flash was, you have a gazillion lifetimes of karma that you're accountable for that you are doing nothing about. This was a very, very scary thought. (laughs) And I thought, there must be something to this mantra. So I started going to the temple in Manhattan. They had a restaurant that was very good. For me, being a vegetarian at the time was not as easy as it is now. And I had no money because you don't make a lot of money doing that kind of work, so it was relatively inexpensive. I started hanging out there, and then uh, I realized I could live there <laughs> if I wanted to, which would be a step up from where I was living. I was living in the basement of a Soho gallery. Um, so I thought, all right, this would be an improvement. And uh, the, uh, the person in charge of the uh, facilities, he, he called the Temple Commander, I went to uh, I went to him, uh, and he was a very serious person, very serious, Krayshwar Pandit. And uh, I said, "How much rent shall I pay?" And he said, "The rent will be that you just come to the morning program." And I thought, "He's not as smart as he looks. I was going to do that anyway. He's missing out on a chance to get some rent." Anyway, so I started going to the program, and then it finally occurred to me, you know what? I and, and I was going to my job. You know, every day. And then it finally occurred to me, I don't need this job. I can just live here and do this all day and it'll be fine. I, you know, I didn't have anything to renounce at this point in my life. So that's how it happened. I, and, and then for the next uh, three or four years, um, I uh, was just 24-7 full-time practicing devotional yoga. And, uh, and that's, how I, that's how I learned. And so that's what happened. So my next question is, when did you figure out you had enough? Um, that's a good question also. Uh, I, even though I was uh, chanting and following the principles, uh, there is a verse that you will find later in the Gita, I believe it's later in the Gita, where Krishna says, if you're contemplating the uh, objects of the senses while you appear to be doing meditation, then you are fooling yourself. 
I allowed the seeds of my material desires to grow right alongside of the creeper of devotion within my heart. And eventually, it took over. And I felt compelled by that desire to uh, head back to material life. Now, fortunately for me, I'm not good at material life. And uh, so therefore, everything I've ever tried to do has been, I think it's safe to say, a colossal failure. <laughs> so this is this is so this is my good fortune that I feel Krishna must really like me in spite of the fact that I have such a small 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 desire to be reunited with Krishna because he's seen to it that everything I try to do to go in the opposite direction from him fails <laughs> and every so often in the middle of those failures what you know it, it, there there has been one circumstance in particular where uh, Krishna sent me uh, uh, someone to turn me around back to Krishna uh, in the midst of the most colossal of the succession of colossal failures. Uh, and so, you, so we have to be aware or try to be aware of when Krishna doesn't just do something but sends someone to tell us something we need to hear to help us align our uh, core beliefs with our actions or align our actions with our core beliefs Uh, because that was the problem I, I believed that I was an eternal spirit soul and eternal servant of Krishna but I was acting in a way that was totally contrary to this deep-rooted belief, thinking that someday I'll burn off my material desires by pouring gasoline on the fire and then get back to it. Okay. Um, anyway, so this, so this can happen. That, that uh, you know, Krishna can make some arrangement for us and we just have to be... It's like the story of the person uh, uh, who... Uh, is warned that there's going to be a flood. And he says, and, and then when the evacuation people come, he says, yeah, don't, uh, God will save me. Uh, don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. And then the flood comes and, you know, the people on the boat come, they get in the boat, and the guy, guy says, no, God will save me. And he's up on the roof of his house, the waters are rising, the helicopter comes, drops the ladder, and they say, get on the ladder, climb into the helicopter. And he says, no, no, God will save me. And then the water comes up to the top of his roof and he drowns. And he goes to heaven and sees God and say, says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent the guys with the megaphone, I sent the guys with the boat, I sent the guys with the helicopter, what more do you want? <laughs> so, um, seeing, seeing Krishna coming to get you through others uh, is a good way to help develop this consciousness of how Krishna as a person is an active principle in our lives. So that's that, so that takes me back to where I'm at now. I'm going to ask you one or two more questions then we're going to open this up. Okay. I get this all the time so I'm kind of wigging from what you just said. The impression might be that you're either in or you're out. You know, the spiritual life is 
this, and this is somehow contradictory with the life of the senses, that allowing yourself to feel the impulses of sensuality, of pleasure, of joy, of, of being a part of the world that we live in is somehow the bad guy scenario, and the good guy scenario is the opposite from that. Mm -hmm. So is that the case, or is there some kind of syn synthesis? I think that one of my difficulties in my spiritual life and in my development as a devotional yogi uh, was that I insisted on making that distinction, that it was an all-or-nothing deal, either... You know, I'm completely renounced, not involved in uh, my senses at all. Uh, the senses were the bad guys. And, you know, I'm, I, so I'm, I was either in or out. As soon as I gave into one little thing on the material side, then the whole thing just fell apart. And, and that was my excuse for just bailing on my whole spiritual program. So that can be uh, a problem, I think, for people who are cultivating trying to cultivate uh, a spiritual life in general and, and devotional yoga in particular. Because as Purnima said, you know, we, we have uh, conditionings coming from a Western orientation with theology that makes it hard to imagine, first of all, a non-sectarian theological yoga where there's a, uh, a person, a supreme person involved in our yoga practice. Um, and then secondly, the, you know, the conception of that supreme person is uh, skewed a little bit uh, in so much as you know, we in the West think of God as being uh, the uh, bearded gentleman in the flowing robes flying across the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and, and all that goes with that conception as opposed to the conception of the supreme person that we see in the Bhagavad Gita who is encouraging us to engage in the world but change why we engage in the, world, uh, uh, in the affairs of the world uh, and who the ultimate benefactor of our activities is. So I think that there is, uh, in, a, in a more mature understanding, uh, a, a way that Krishna is showing us here to engage in the world rather than reject the world. Um, and to understand our senses as being uh, both our own senses and also Krishna's senses. Uh, if, we're, if our understanding is that we are all infinitesimal parts of a complete whole, then uh, our senses are also part of that complete whole. So by understanding how to engage the senses, taking that into account, then uh, we can use the senses in such a way as to cultivate um, a, a spiritual consciousness. So it's, so it's not necessarily, it's not a, 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 a situation of rejection of one and acceptance of the other and that they're all mutually exclusive. It's, an it's a positive integration of the two that's required and I feel that my spiritual life is much more balanced now and I have much more optimism for the future of my spiritual life now that I'm not thinking in such you know, all or nothing at all uh, in, in, in ways about it. Well, here's my follow-up question. President Obama has just come out in support of same-sex marriage. 
Is that supported by the Bhagavad Gita or is that opposed by the Bhagavad Gita? Good question. I haven't really uh, thought about it in exactly those terms. Uh, my thought... I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually confident that, that it is supported. So, so the answer to the question is, in my opinion, yes. The reason it is yes is because uh, Krishna is pretty clear that one has to act according to one's nature. And that repression of one's nature accomplishes little or nothing. That one must, first of all, be peaceful in order to be happy. Peace, peace is peacefulness of mind is the mandatory prerequisite for happiness and to be able to execute yoga. And devotional yoga in particular is the yoga of relationships. So the, um, I think, you know, the mistaken assumption that people who have an opposition to uh, same-sex relationships is that it's all about the sex which of course is very dirty and, and perverted and strange and, 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 and horrible and unnatural. Well, it may not be the most natural thing from the standpoint of the essential nature of male and female and the uh, procreative function of, uh, of sexuality. Um, but we find examples uh, of experiences of uh, homosexuality in the Puranas, in, in ancient yoga uh, wisdom texts. Um, and from a practical standpoint, if the objective is to be peaceful and to help one another in a relationship to cultivate spiritual consciousness, and it is one's nature to be drawn to intimate relationships with one of who is who is a member of the same sex, then that's going to be then 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 acting according to your nature, being peaceful and 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 being in a relationship where you can help each other advance in spiritual life. That's the uh, prime directive. Speaking in Star Trekies. Uh, you know, that's the overriding principle. And so in, in that respect, I would say uh, yes, and, and certainly from the standpoint of just uh, the, the justice of having uh, equal rights for same-sex partners to support one another, especially in uh, the moments when you want that person who's closest to you to be close to you, uh, if you're in the hospital, if you're dying, if you are in need of uh, uh, assistance, if, if you want to make sure that whatever is yours is passed on to the person that means the most to you, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's the, all the stuff that makes us peaceful, and therefore that's the kind of stuff that, that we need. Um, and in particular, if the relationship is a spiritually based relationship, then by all means... Uh, you know, far better to be peaceful and engage in, in, in 
devotional yoga in a peaceful state of mind uh, than to be caught up in the uh, uh, inner conflict of wondering whether or not you're the pervert everyone says you are or the outer conflict of simply wanting to be uh, have the same protections under the law as everybody else. So that would be my answer to that. Any questions from the peanut gallery here? You always have a question, Mike. Let's see if there's someone else first. Doesn't necessarily have to be on the verse. Yes. So the Gita doesn't address the issue of homosexuality at all because in the Kama Sutra it does, and it describes acts of um, you know, uh, homosexual sex without judgment or criticism of Gita. But I think it's only kind of like when there were no men around women to engage. The, the Gita itself, I cannot, I can't think of any particular verse in the Gita where, where this issue it comes up specifically. There's, um, and I'm trying to go through... The, I can think of one. Oh, okay, yes, what is it? Uh, Krishna describes that this is the... Chapter, I, so I am sex, which is not opposed to dharma. Now the issue then becomes, what's dharma? He doesn't say, I am heterosexuality, which is not opposed to dharma. He says, I am sex. Kamosmi, I am sex, which is not opposed to dharma. Now, the dharma that he's referring to, we can understand from the context of the Gita, is the yearning of the soul to reunite with God. If your partnership is nourishing that yearning for God, Krishna says, I am there present in that relationship. That's my understanding. Um, and then actually leads you back to the false renunciate thing, because when you try to... That would you suppress or repress, actually, you become. Or, um, I would refer to that, that which you hate, you inevitably become. Because your focus is so much on that, that you end up taking it on. And so, when you take on the false robes of piety and I'm hey, you know, I'm so godlike in my superiority, you have become less than human, you have become prideful have separated yourself from God. And so when you have these modes of, of whatever it is, instead of pointing your finger at someone else, and as Sharon Yannick has said, there are three other fingers pointing right back at you, is to go back to your, your own practice. And if you are keeping God in the utmost level of your heart and your mind, emanating from that will be the relationship, whatever it is. And so instead of focusing on the sex, you're focusing on the quality of serving God in that relationship. And of course, the biggest challenge of serving a relationship is the most challenging ones, whether it's your parent or picking a mate. Because it doesn't, just because you get married, as we all know, or are involved with people, it does not bode eternal happiness. Marriage does not guarantee <laughs> eternal happiness. It is actually an incredible sadhana, and that one has to rely upon one's 
um, consciousness in God so you don't break away from that. Mm-hmm. Because you can run away from it, but it will you will end up reliving it again. Because as you said, there's a reason why that person is in front of you to serve you, or for you to excuse me, for you to serve God in that capacity. Yeah, if you're seeing if you're seeing God within the heart of your partner, and they inspire you to see God everywhere, uh, then you know that's the that's the highest dharma. Um, you know, if we uh, translate dharma materially, or if we think in terms of uh, you know rules and regulations according to a dogmatic approach to, to things. You know, yeah, then we can get uh, caught up in a lower dharma, or a lower sense of dharma. Well, let's pursue this for a second. Yeah. Are you... Uh, we're, we're this far out on the limb, we might as well, might go well keep going. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, are you, is, is divorce forbidden by the Bhagavad Gita? I mean, are we condemned to a relationship once we've embarked on it, uh, even if it's not healthy one? No, if, it's, if, if you're not happy, uh, you take sannyas. <laughs> he said take someone else. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I don't, again, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't, there's, there's a You know, I don't think it's... I hope it's not forbidden, because if it is, then I'm already in trouble. Um, and I don't know of a place where it says quite specifically that, you know, you must never, ever get divorced. And you may know a verse that explicitly says that, or, or deals with that, that issue. Um, but... Um, There's, you know, you can we can get caught up in in the uh, in the externals. I think everyone has to judge for themselves how a relationship is working or not working in their. Obviously, obviously something's not working in the kitchen. Um, how you know how a relationship relationship is working or not working for us on a uh, spiritual level? You know, if our reason once again it, it comes to down to the reason for doing a thing. If our reason for wanting to get a divorce or remove ourselves from a relationship is uh, strictly a matter of uh, selfish desire. Uh, then one may want to look at why you got into the relationship in the first place, as that might have been uh, selfish desire. If, on the other hand, no, no, that's not no, then that's that's you know that's one reason. Um, you know, on the other hand, one might have gotten into a relationship with the best of intentions and the uh, highest of hopes, and have it not work out. Um, I can speak from experience on this. Um, having uh, exhausted uh, all other possible solutions 
uh, one might come to the conclusion that I am not able to help this person or be the person that they need me to be in this relationship, nor do I see is it possible for them to be the person I need them to be uh, in order for uh, me to make any any progress. You know, you might come to that point, and that's the point where at one point in one of my past relationships I came to, where I just didn't, I wasn't going to be doing this person any favors by sticking around, it, by continuing, in trying to continue the relationship. It, it, it had become exhausted, and therefore it was necessary, in my view, uh, to, to end it. And I did so in the most responsible and compassionate way I possibly could. Um, and I hope, ultimately, for our mutual benefit. Um, so, so, the, so it, as with uh, anything concerning the Bhagavad Gita, I think it's a, consi- con, uh, a consideration of why are you doing this? What is your motivation for doing it? Um, not even so much as how did you get here, but how are you going to respond to your destiny in the most uh, spiritually conscious way? I, 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 thank you. That was, that was a lovely answer. I, I think it's significant that in the, in the context of the Gita, the story of the Gita itself is really a story of a kind of divorce, hmm. if you will. In... Well, in what the sense that? that Arjuna tried to every in every possible way to reconcile with his own family. Mm-hmm. If you will, they went to therapy together. <laughs> <laughs> they tried compromise. They tried working it out. Negotiation in every imaginable form. And when it was clear that there was just not going to be any reconciling between them. Mm-hmm. That's when it became clear, all right, then we have to agree to separate. Yes. And, of course, not all separations have to come to war, but I think the fact that, you know, the point you were making is that Mm -hmm. you have to be able to read the writing on the walls at a certain point. There are some situations that are just not going to be resolved, and there is a Gita-like or Bhakti-like devotional way to do anything, including separate. Yeah. And that would be with compassion, with causing the least harm possible to the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, actually, I, mean, I, I was thinking of uh, Arjuna's predicament, as I was saying, you know, when all other uh, avenues of reconciliation are exhausted, then yes, this is exactly, your, I think that's a good way to, to, to think about it. Um, we have time for one or two other questions, if you have questions. Is it a question, Rodney? No, I want to compliment them. <laughs> All right, well, then you have to keep it really short. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Inside the truth, and 
and this is where you find the happiness that follows you wherever you go. Mm. And it's like, oh, I put your hands and how you came out that you left. Congratulations. All right, well, thank you. Sure. Now, now that you've complimented me, I must be entirely honest with you, uh, all of you. Uh, although I did do my very best uh, to be compassionate and, uh, and all of those things that go with that, um, at that point in my life, I cannot say that I was uh, devoid of selfish desire. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, if I'm going to be honest with you about my own state of mind at the time, um, you know, my, my uh, situation was such that uh, I was uh, still, uh, I still had some motivation that was uh, one of fulfilling material desire. So I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm, I'm sounding as if, you know, I was taking the, the saintly high road in every respect. Because uh, that simply wasn't the case. Is there such a road to take that Huh? Is there such a road? To oh, is there such a road? I mean, I don't yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there is such a road. I think that um, it's not the easiest road to find. It's... Uh, But I, th I think that there is such a road and we can, if our own hearts are pure enough, aspire to walk on that road. All I'm saying is in my particular circumstance at that time, I was doing the best that I could do. Yeah. But, but, but it was not uh, devoid of, of selfishness. Can I ask you? That phrase, I think, is the operative phrase there at that time. Yeah. Would you say that you have evolved spiritually to a place, and I don't know how long ago this was, but have you come to a place now where, had you been the person then, whom you are now, would things have come out differently, do you think? Let me restate the question. If I was then the person I am now, would it have come out differently? Uh, no. The result would have been the same, but my actions after the fact would have been different. That's what would have changed. Well, uh, Krishna does describe that path as a viable, though more difficult, way to go. D disengage. In other words, he says, you know, you can go to the forest, you can lay out your kusha grass, you can suspend your breathing, suspending the outgoing breath into the ingoing breath, keeping your mind completely focused after engaging in the Eightfold Mystic Yoga process and then at exactly the right time with total control of your senses leave your body and go to somewhere else. 
Uh, or, you know, you can attain, uh, you know, the uh, goal of realizing uh, the uh, undifferentiated oneness of being, but that's more difficult to do. So you, so, so you can do it. So, so the reason people do it um, is because they, they reject the world. They're, they're, what they're hearing is that exactly what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, that it's an all-or-nothing deal. Either you accept the world or you reject the world. So um, you can think of it as, um, you know, the thesis is that we are here in the world to enjoy the world. We work hard and enjoy the results of our actions. And then the antithesis is, I reject the world. The world's an illusion. It's all false. I'm going to, like, disappear into a separate reality uh, altogether. And then the synthesis is devotional yoga, what Krishna is giving us here as the better method, which is engage with the world, but understand it from a spiritual perspective and change the reason why you are doing things. Do them, work in the world, but your motivation should be something other than a selfish motivation. Your motivation changes to you are doing this for me, not for yourself. Understanding who I actually am. Um, it depends on what books you're reading. You know, it depends on, on, on who you're hearing about. I mean, you know, the auto, in Autobiography of the Yogi, uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda uh, talks a great deal about how the acquisition of mystic cities or uh, mystic powers uh, is a stumbling block on the path of self-realization. And then he goes on to describe all these mystic yogis who have all these mystic cities. Uh, and the whole book is practically filled with them. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, in the journey home, I don't know why, but one of the most uh, powerful stories is when Radhan Swami meets a man and says, Oh, come sit next to me. And everyone's getting blessed with tons of people. And he says, So, tell me, where are you from? I'm from America. Oh, wow. So, ultimately, the conversation is, You left America? You bought everything in America. It's blessing people. That's still not what you're doing. You should go be going back and you're going to ruin your life and keep going this stupid life of being ascetic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wish I was in America. The man is blessing people and he's cursing at rather small meeting. So here's this man of God. I was like, oh, you know, yeah. oh, yes, thank you so much. Every day this man is cursing like he wants to be in America with a big house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you go to the forest and, and, and you still have all those desires and you're just repressing them, it, it's a very difficult deal. Um, also, uh, you know, you may be famous uh, for being very renounced, very powerful, having mystic powers, you know, being able to stand in a ice-cold river up to your neck on one leg, you know, uh, if you want to be famous for that, um, you know, that may, that may be happen. Uh, that, you know, that may happen. Uh, but you know what does that you know ultimately get you? Um, you know one of the uh, uh, for many years now it's changing a little bit, but for many years one of the the, the uh, least famous uh, yogis in the world uh, was actually the busiest 
yogi in the world. Um, but he didn't become famous because he was too busy making Krishna famous to become famous himself. Now he's a little more famous. Maybe part of the answer is, is the same reason why I'll never see an action-adventure movie about accountants. <laughs> it's just not all that exciting. But without them, you know, things might not work as well. Well, uh, one more question. Yeah. Go ahead. Casey? Um, how, how does someone regulate uh, what is good and what is bad? Because I can, someone can tell me and justify their sexual nature or behavior in the Bhagavad Gita. In every text. You can justify it and then you can find something that's not justifying it. So there has to work. So is there a line? Like I can say, you know what, I'm going to decide to blow up a building because all these people are not conscious, Krishna conscious, whatever. And I'm justifying it in my own terms because it's bringing me closer to Krishna. So how does how do you justify or regulate what is going a little beyond mm. uh, whether it's your pleasures that you seek um, or just becoming crazy okay. and wanting to kill a bunch of people? Right, so the que- question is how do you make a distinction between good and evil uh, and rationalization sure. and justified action? Yeah, because in this verse, Krishna says, I'm, according to what I'm reading, and I'm understanding is, I'm both. I'm good and evil. Yeah. None of it affects me. Mm-hmm. So, but it affects you. So who is there to say what is good and bad? Because none of it is really affecting me. When, when is it spiritual inspiration and when is this your own when crazy crackpot, you know, uh, uh, stuff? Well, um, the first, the first thing is, uh, you know, what's what's your motivation? Again, you know, the the, the first litmus test is uh, is this a selfish desire uh, or is this a selfless service? Then the second uh, indicator is. Uh, what does Krishna say he wants? You know, is this a favorable service or an unfavorable service? Um, the uh, the experts, the traditional experts in the field of bhakti yoga, of devotional uh, yoga, uh, have indicated very specifically that uh, it's devotional service, it's bhakti, it comes out of love when it is favorable. Service and favorable means that you have some idea of what this person that you are serving uh, wants. You know, I mean, if you have a guest in your home and you want to serve them something nice and you know they're allergic to milk, you won't make them a milkshake. So, it, this is where svadhyaya or study of the self through the eyes of yoga wisdom texts comes in really handy. Because that way you're not speculating as to whether or not blowing up a building uh, will be pleasing to Krishna. Uh, You will be able to hear, what is it that Krishna actually wants me to do? And if I do that, then I'm rendering for service favorably, therefore it is good. And if I'm speculating, uh, then it's, it's 
evil. And if you're crazy, then you're not in a position to make that judgment anymore because that's the definition of crazy, is that you, you, your, your powers of discernment uh, are, are uh, malfunctioning to a degree where uh, you are a danger to yourself and others and, and somebody else needs to step in and, and do something about you. And what if it goes to personal relationships, like with intimate relationships with other people? And, um, I mean, I've had many sexual relationships with people, and none of them are spiritual. Or I wasn't thinking of Christian laws having these, you know, sexual relationships with everyone. So I'm thinking, well, then, sex is really not in it. it in just long enough to reassess why you are having these relationships um, and explore how your um, inclination to have them can be rerouted into something that is genuinely spiritual. Because there's, I mean, there's something that's working for you about doing that, but it's not the pursuit of self-realization. Now, I don't want to, like, play therapist on you here uh, but I think that um, who you choose to be your partners uh, and your motivation for seeking such partners out uh, for this purpose um, could could use some reevaluation if you're serious about figuring out how to engage your natural propensities in such a way as they are elevating rather than degrading that would be that would be my suggestion as to how to think about it. So one thing to become clear after this evening's discussion is that it's time for a refresher on yoga and sexuality. So we will <laughs> we'll reschedule that conversation for some time in the future. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we owe Hari Kirtan a very big debt of gratitude for having uh, taken on some difficult topics for us this evening. So please join me in thanking you for. pleasure and honor to be here uh, with you and to spend this time with you. I uh, hope to do it again sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So uh, please um, stick around if you like. What are our treats this evening? Oatmeal, almonds, Linzer tarts. Everyone's favorite. Oatmeal, almonds, Linzer. Yum. It's like my phone.